Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. First off, I would like to um, just walk down memory lane with you because I feel like I've known you virtually for a while, um, at least 10 years, thanks to your prolific blogging and, and congratulations on running a blog. It looks like, did you start in 2002? Yeah, I think so. Uh, my son had just turned 13. Uh, the day before. So that means uh, June 2002. Wow. Um, You have through this, uh, the kind of theme is rethinking and something that I've admired about you over the years is your willingness to rethink things. Um, Where does that come from? Oh, that's an interesting way to put the question. Um, Well, I grew up in a family where my dad went to church once in a while. My mom was Adventist. Uh, I went to public school. So, you know, I was always exposed to lots of different ideas. And I just saw one of my pictures from uh, GC in Atlanta from 10 years ago. I was at the Atlantic Union College booth and saw Lynn Sauls, who had been our academic dean at AUC at the time. And I remember the talk that he gave to freshmen. And it was one of these, you come in, one person, and you will not leave from here the same person. You will not leave with the same ideas that you have today. You're going to be challenged. Your beliefs will change. And yeah, sure, they did. <laughs> <laughs> um, because uh, uh, part of my story was leaving the Adventist Church while I was at AUC. This was the early 80s. Uh, when I got there the summer of 1984, years, 40 years ago, uh, Glacier View was happening. Yeah. And, uh, one of our faculty members, Dean Davis, had been there. Um, and so that was the ferment. And I was the newspaper editor for the AUC student newspaper. And I was interviewing people like uh, Des Ford and Bob Brinsmead and Walter Ray uh, at that time. And uh, those were ideas that had influenced me and led me at the end of my junior year in 1983 to leave the Adventist Church and go walk about, as the Aussies say, for 25 <laughs> years uh, and came back in 2007, uh, 13 years ago, and was immediately welcomed back with open arms by the church. Uh, uh, the conference president took my family and me out to eat and offered me a call over supper at the Olive Garden. And I told my kids, you'll never have a job interview like that. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it was for me, it was exploring some of the implications. Uh, you know, what's the freedom that we have in the gospel? And what does that say about the church structure? Um, so those were kind of the two issues that I really wrestled with. And that took me to Loma Linda for grad school to start out for church history, then to a Lutheran seminary, uh, ministry in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, got started in chaplaincy in that uh, uh, setting, uh, did lay ministry for the Catholic Church for 14 years, um, including uh, nine years as director of young adult and campus ministry for the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, 
and um, and then came wandering back to the Adventist Church in a sense of being called home, and you know realizing on the outside that I was looking at a lot of the Adventist issues from a different way than I was from the inside as a, you know, as a young kid where the focus was legalism and Adventism as I experienced it and seeing things like the Sabbath as these legalistic constructs, as opposed to in my time out, uh, I got involved in interfaith dialogue at UC Santa Barbara and in Houston. I was uh, involved in the National Workshop for Christian Jewish Relations in Houston in 1999. And that gave me a totally different perspective on the Sabbath, seeing it from the perspective of Jewish tradition as this princess that you welcome, uh, as this holy time that, as Abraham Heschel talks about, the sanctification of time, and seeing it as a liberating thing. Uh, and that experience made me think of some things that Sam Bakayaki had written about. So I got back in touch with him, and that was part of my re-exploration, looking at it from the outside rather than the inside. And that was kind of the way that I found myself coming back. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, looking at um, not just your blog, but other uh, at the time, Catholic bloggers, as you were making that move um, into Adventism, and it actually caused quite a stir, if I remember correctly. Yeah, uh, especially with some of the young adults uh, who I'd worked with here in Houston. Uh, one of them started up a, a Facebook group uh, uh, praying for Bill Cork. Um, and, I, and I was known in the Catholic apologetics circles, yeah. and especially in uh, uh some discussions about uh, anti-Semitism in the uh, in traditional Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to, on my blog, uh, document that a well-known Catholic apologist had plagiarized from Nazi tracts against the Jews, uh, and uh, so I got into the apologetic uh, circles that way, and that's kind of how I was known by a lot of people. And so, and also I got caught up in the discussions about the uh, sexual abuse scandal, because that really broke about the time that I was starting my blog. And Mm -hmm. uh, there were several of us that were writing a lot about that. Amy Wellborn is a well-known Catholic blogger who's still uh, in touch with from time to time. And she and I were both posting a lot about that. Mark Shea was another Catholic blogger doing the same thing. So, uh, yeah, that's... uh, that was all happening at that time. Yeah. You know, um, one of the through lines uh, in this is your work as a chaplain, and that connects with your work right now as the assistant director of Adventist Chaplaincy mm-hmm. Ministries for the North American Division. So it's interesting to me that you kind of moved through these different faith traditions, um, but you really stuck with chaplaincy. And I've read, it looks like you've kind of maybe reconsidered that in different ways, but um, what was that like to have this kind of one con was it, maybe I'm characterizing it the wrong way. So please correct me, but is it, there's kind of a through line with your work, your service um, as a chaplain, and then your, your, your kind of faith exploration is going on. What was it like to have those two tracks? Yeah, well, that's kind of, go back to where it started. Uh, I was my junior year at Broadview Academy, like 1977, 78, 
and I was thinking about ministry, and I'd been in public school, in high school, ROTC, uh, my sophomore year in Rockford, Illinois, and was wrestling with those two things, and then heard a chaplain speak, uh, Dick Stenbachen, uh, and suddenly I saw that hey, I could put these two together, and ministry doesn't just have to be congregational ministry. That was a real eye-opening thing. Um, and I remember asking him after his presentation, so what does it take to become a chaplain? He said, first you have to be a pastor, then we have to pick you. Next question. <laughs> and there was a lot of laughter. But I said that to Dick a few years ago, and he says, yep, sounds just like what I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that idea of doing ministry in these other settings outside of the church just really was exciting to me. Um, and when I was at AUC as an undergrad, uh, we were really fortunate to be so close to the Boston area. Um, you know, about 45 minutes it took to get into Boston. And I would uh, go in with uh, uh, one of my professors. He was doing his uh, uh, Ph.D. at uh, Boston University at that time. And I'd go in with him, and then I'd uh, take the— Charlie and go to the Boston Public Library and do some research because I'd been hired as a research assistant by Charles Teal, who was a professor yeah. of sociology religion at Loma Linda La Sierra. And my freshman year, he had me starting to do research, helping him studying this Unitarian abolitionist and transcendentalist, Theodore Parker. So, uh, uh, and, and with AUC, we were going in to hear different lectures at uh, BU and at Harvard, people like, uh, uh, Langdon Gilkey, uh, Charles Hartzorn, Wolfhart Ponenberg, Francis Schaefer, you know, wow. the whole wide wow. uh, theological spectrum. Um, and uh, that really excited me that we could be part of these kinds of uh, uh, discussions and to see how much broader the uh, uh, Christian world was. Um, and I went from AUC to uh, uh, Loma Linda. And I took classes at the La Sierra campus, which was still part of Loma Linda at that time, at Loma Linda and at UC Riverside. And taking classes at UCR, I started to see what other denominations were doing in terms of public campus ministry. And that really amazed me, uh, reading some of the history of how some of these campus ministry organizations started in the late 19th century and wondering, you know, why don't Adventists do anything like that? Um, and I pastored for uh, a while as a Lutheran pastor. Then I really focused on educational ministries, coordinating educational ministries for a Catholic parish in uh, upstate New York, um, and then got into campus ministry in uh, 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 1996 at UC Santa Barbara. But 10 years before that, I had gotten into the military as a seminarian. They have this program called the Chaplain Candidate Program, where you can be commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army Reserve of the National Guard and get military training while doing seminary. And so summer of 1986, I was doing that at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. And then that fall, I was doing clinical pastoral education on the Army's dime at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And uh, so these experiences are really Again, we're formative things, uh, ministering uh, in a secular environment to people of all different faiths, yet being expected to be true to your own faith. Yeah. And 
and not dealing with uh, uh, so many of the things that involve so much church conflict. You know, what colors of the carpet? What color? <laughs> what, what are we doing for this program or that program? For the things that sometimes congregations can get so wrapped up in. Um, uh, uh, but uh, uh, these were life and death issues. You know, I had the neurosurgery and neurology board, patients with uh, brain injuries, uh, 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 tumors, uh, aneurysms, so serious life and death stuff. And uh, that also... Uh, really transformed my ministry instead of looking at ministry in terms of, okay, we need to set these goals and uh, we need to plan for how many uh, of this, how many of that are we doing? What kind of congregational programs are we doing? How many baptisms are we getting? But seeing that holiness of that ministry of presence and being with people in that time of need and being able to be that expression of grace at that time of crisis um, and so I did 10 years, uh, first as a chaplain candidate, then some years in the Vermont National Guard as a chaplain, a couple of years at UC Santa Barbara, and then nine years as director of all the campus ministry programs for the Catholic Church in Southeast Texas here. Um, and when I came back to the Adventist Church, uh, the Texas conference says, hey, it's wonderful. You've had all these great experiences. Um and uh, they connected me with people like uh, Alan Martin, who was doing uh-huh. the NAD coordinator for young adult ministry at the time, and with Ron Pakel, who was then and still is the NAD coordinator for public campus ministry. And through them, I got connected with Adventist Chaplaincy Ministries, and Gary Council said, with a background like that, you really need to get back into uh, the military chaplaincy. So 2009, I got back into the Texas National Guard, uh, 2013, I spent deployed to Kuwait for a year. And while I was gone, Gary started saying, hey, we're going to have an opening. and It would be really great if we could pull you on board as an assistant director when you get back. And so 2014, I was able to do that. And they said, hey, you don't have to move to Maryland, stay in Texas, and just work with our chaplains in the central U.S. That's great. So that's kind of the quick run through uh, that. What a career. And you did I uh, notice, um, I usually read Twitter when I'm uh, half asleep, uh, so I don't always know exactly what um, is true or not, but that's helpful in trying to understand what's happening in our uh, U.S. government. <laughs> um, but uh, I, are you back in school doing a, what, another master's, this time in public health? Yeah, I started uh, the summer uh, with all my free time. Yeah. Uh, started a master of public health degree. I got out of the army uh, a little over a year ago, 2019. My last army chaplain position was in the army reserve. I was uh, uh, assigned to the office of the chief of chaplains at the Pentagon, uh, part of the strategic initiative group, really looking at strategic priorities for the military chaplaincy. And uh, one of the key issues is issues like suicide and how chaplains respond to that. Um, how to build resilience uh, to uh, crises and trauma. And so I was doing a lot of research there and going to a lot of academic conferences and conferences on the relationship between medicine and spirituality. And my whole chaplain focus for the past 10 years had really been on suicide prevention. And so uh, I decided that uh, I've got some veterans benefits uh, 
both the GI bills that my kids didn't completely use up and uh, Texas Benefits uh, Hazelwood Act that gives veterans free tuition for 120 hours at any state university. So I opted to do a master public health focused on health promotion and health education, uh, really uh, uh, targeting some of these issues like suicide prevention. Oh, that's fantastic. Why suicide prevention specifically? Well, that's how my career in the military chaplaincy just uh, ended up being focused on that. Um, In my first 10 years, I had one soldier who died by suicide. And I had, I did no suicide intervention, but when I got back in, in 2009, suddenly that became one of the main focuses of what I was doing. And one month I had five suicides in my brigade, three in one battalion down in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, and, uh, had other traumas that I was responding to, uh, Humvee rollovers, uh, uh, responded to two of those that killed three young soldiers. Um, but I really started, uh, uh, being known, especially in the Texas national guard as the, one of the people to call in the Houston area for, uh, suicide interventions and for caring for families after uh, a loved one had died by suicide. Um, I did training to become a suicide in- intervention instructor, for the army and then also started getting connected with our community mental health agencies and other veterans networks uh, here in the Houston area, looking at uh, how do we build a community that is much more responsive to uh, the needs of uh, veterans, service members, law enforcement, young adults, uh, all of these uh, populations that have a higher risk of suicide. Well, thanks for that work. How has um, your work in suicide prevention um, affected the way that you think about military service? Well, one of the issues that uh, uh, we've, of course, talked about in terms of military service is what war does to the soldier. Um, And we've been talking since the early 80s of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and that's w- the latest name for something that was known as shell shock and other things and uh, generations back. Um, but uh, about the same time, uh, some folks began to see that, you know, PTSD doesn't really fit everything that service members and uh, veterans are dealing with. Uh, when we think of PTSD, it's a response to a trauma, you know, whether it's combat or hurricane, tornado, assault, uh, uh, car accident, uh, and it's really characterized by a lot of fear and anxiety, uh, remembering the event. Um, whereas we started to see that there was something else going on that uh, a VA psychiatrist by the name of Jonathan Shea coined the term moral injury to really focus on damage done to the soul Hmm. by combat. Um, And uh, uh, he characterized it as really a sense of guilt and shame. Um, And there's a lot of overlap to people that have PTSD can have moral injury. And and there's a lot of commonality in terms of symptoms 
uh, anger, depression, uh, withdrawal, substance abuse, and so on. But here's where kind of they separate with PTSD being more the uh, uh, fear and anxiety. And yes, some survivor's guilt kind of things, but moral injury, more that sense of guilt and shame for what you've done or what you've been a part of. Uh, he wrote a couple of books, one called uh, uh, Achilles in Vietnam and one called Odysseus in America, picking up on the imagery from the Iliad and the Odyssey yeah. uh, of what those stories tell and how uh, Achilles, uh, he gets uh, uh, cheated as he sees it by Agamemnon, his king, who uh, steals uh his war trophy, captive woman, uh, and that, that he was due. And so he sits out on his boat and he pouts and he fumes and he lashes out in anger. And where he would have uh, let prisoners live, he just slaughters them. And uh, Shea saw a lot of that stuff happening with American soldiers in Vietnam. And so that's where that's what the story of uh, his, his book is, is really connecting uh, those experiences of uh, Vietnam vets who were disillusioned with the uh, leadership, disgusted by their participation in the war, and what it did to them in terms of both their uh, withdrawal and how they acted out in some situations. And then in his book, Odysseus in America, he looks at, okay, what happens when you come home? Mm. And seeing Odysseus's story, where he tells these stories of all these things that happened to him on his journey. Um, but the narrator doesn't tell the stories. Odysseus tells all these stories about Cyclops and Siren and so on at a banquet. And so Shay looks at those as, hey, what are the stories we tell to hide what's happened to us and to cover up the pain? And what are the masks that we wear? And Odysseus is finally recognized when a household servant is washing his feet and recognizes a scar on his legs. Um, so those are the things that uh, uh, um, I also started reflecting on uh, and hearing the stories of, of soldiers, uh, both in the hospitals, uh, in my unit, on deployment. Uh, at one point, and we were based in uh, Kuwait, my unit was, and we were an aviation unit responsible for all of Army aviation in the Middle East. Uh, and at one point, things were tensing up, and we were thinking we might have to uh, evacuate the Baghdad embassy. And some of my helicopter pilots had visions of the fall of Saigon, of those helicopters that were landing on the roof of the embassy and uh, evacuating the embassy personnel. And they suddenly had this feeling that, wait a second, this is like they were in. Uh, here we've been at this for how many years now? Uh, you know, we're coming up on 20 years at, at this point, but at that point, like 15 years. Um, and some of them were feeling that identification with uh, Vietnam, with the futility, uh, with lies being told by government leaders, and uh, a lot of a lot of reflection. Yeah, um, and I felt that too. Yeah, you know, we uh, I got caught up in like a lot of others did with the uh, uh, a lot of the anger uh, after 9-11 and uh, uh, President Bush at that time decided, hey, we're going to go in uh, at war. We're going to start these wars in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And then years later, we find out 
how feeble the basis was. Uh, and for some veterans, it can be a questioning of you know, what we did, uh, uh, why we went, the whole basis for it. Now, I was fortunate when I was over there, we were not, nobody was shooting at us that year. We weren't shooting at anybody. Um, we were building partnerships. So I got to go to a lot of partnership events with uh, militaries from all the different nations of the Gulf Cooperative Council, uh, UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, uh, Qatar, Bahrain, uh, Kuwait, and so on. And I got to build some really good friendships with the imams of the Kuwait Ministry of Defense. Uh, but that too, from my perspective, it's like, okay, this is a good thing that we're doing, trying to build partnerships. But if only we'd done more of that rather than just this gung-ho, go in by ourselves and blow things up. Yeah. Uh, um, that's really interesting to hear as you've, you know, went through this experience and reflected on it in the moment and then um, subsequently. Um as you kind of look back uh, on what it means and what it means in terms of um, not just yourself, but um, America, uh, this country uh, that we're both in, um, how has your thinking about um, the military changed? You know, I'm thinking of it in terms of 4th of July coming up and it's a time of patriotism and, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways of defining patriotism. I think for a while there, especially after 9-11, it was defined in a very militaristic way and not just um, by that. I don't mean just by the military, but using the military for a certain set of foreign policy goals um, in in. Uh, connected to a certain type of economic system for a certain number of people who would benefit. And I'm just curious how you have, uh, you know, sort of rethought it. Well, let's go back a bit. Um, you know, some of the things that led me into it were you know, a, whole, a whole family history of connection with the military. And one of the things we see today is uh most people that are serving the military today are from families where brothers, sisters, parents, cousins, uh, aunts and uncles have all served, or many of them have served. Uh, whereas in the general publication, population, we find people where nobody's served since grandpa was in World War II. Uh, uh, so we've had kind of a separation, a civil-military divide there between those experiences. And my experience is definitely one of those where people in every generation uh, were serving. I have a copy of my great-great-grandfather's Civil War diary. Uh, I have pictures of my grandfather in World War One, my great-uncle in World War Two. My dad was Air Force. Uh, siblings were in the military, uncles, cousins. Um, so our, my family's always seen it in terms of national service. Um, and that was part of what drew, drew me to it. But at the same time, when I did the chaplain course, they reinforced the course. And this is 1986. So this is uh, a little over a decade after uh, Vietnam. But all of my instructors were Vietnam vets. And they emphasized how the chaplain has to be in the world, but not of it, like the Christian, uh, hmm. even though we were of different faiths. Uh, but we have to be 
as one instructor said, kind of the a burr under the saddle of the military at times, standing for principles of uh, 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 equality, of justice, of rightness, of morality. Um, and so they asked questions of us. You know, where were the chaplains during Milai? The whole chaplain chain failed there. Um, uh, chaplains didn't pass on or didn't believe the stories that they were told. It was really scandalous. Um, and so they reinforced that we had to be that moral voice and we had to not be sucked into uh, the system. Um, fall of 1990, I'm at Fort Bragg for a couple of months, uh, got activated as a reservist to help provide rear deployment ministry. And I went into the 82nd Airborne Division Memorial Chapel and my senior chaplain pointed me to this window over the altar, stained glass window that had St. Michael, uh, the archangel, descending uh, with the paratroopers of the 82nd Airborne <laughs> over St. Mary's during D-Day. And he was a Methodist, and he's a major, but he says, have you ever seen something so atrocious? <laughs> um, uh, this blending of militarism and Christianity. Um, and he says, that's definitely not what we're about. And that chapel was uh, reconstructed. They made a bigger one, and they did not put that window into it. Uh, that, that window is now in a museum uh, <laughs> because uh, I think everybody realized, wait a second, this is uh, uh, a bridge too far, as it were, yeah. uh, to keep up with some World War II imagery. Uh, but the, the chaplain is always in that uh, in between world, um, and has to be somebody that people can trust coming to with their doubts that, uh, we have to be able to advise our commanders. And, I, and I've done a lot of that when it had to do with, you know, responding to sexual assault, uh, in the unit to, uh, uh, issues related to our partnerships, to morality and war. Um, I've had those conversations, uh, and they trust me as somebody who's kind of in it, but not of it, to be able to have those conversations. And we as Seventh-day Adventists really have that relationship uh, to an nth degree, being a church that has been historically non-combatant. Um, uh, you know, we only started having uh, chaplains unofficially during World War II. A couple of guys got in, uh, and then officially about 1950. Um, but how do we represent a church that is uh, we still have an official statement that says non-combatancy is what we want to stand for as a denomination while recognizing the individual conscience. Um, but st still being in that kind of liminal space, that mm -hmm. no man's land of uh, uh, having to identify with the people in the unit while also being able to speak truth to power. Yeah. Um, you know, and our most famous chaplain, Barry Black, who rose to be the uh, uh, chief of chaplains for the Navy, a two-star admiral. Um, then he became chaplain for the Senate, where he has really made a name for himself of being able to speak truth to power yeah. and being able to speak very bluntly uh, to his Senate congregation uh, and call them to task, and they love him for it. Um, uh so that's kind of the a theology of paradox. And my, my Lutheran theological education really had a lot of emphasis upon 
paradox and dialectic. You know, that's in Luther, that's in people like uh, Bart, um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that's really the position of the chaplain. And that's how Adventism has always seen itself in the American context of wanting to uh, be of service, but also realizing that yeah, America has been uh, a great history of freedom, but at the same time, this darker side. Uh, and you've probably seen uh, uh, some of the things that Kevin Burton at uh, Southern has been writing lately. He wrote something for uh, the Ministerial Association, and he's yeah. been doing a lot of research into uh, how the church responded during the World War One period, um, and also uh, during the time of uh, the Civil War and the abolitionists. And he found this great woodcut in a uh, Uriah Smith uh, uh, volume from the 1850s of the two-horned beast from Revelation 13 that had came up out of the lamb and had two horns uh, like a lamb but spoke like a dragon. Um, and the earlier depictions showed this really horrible beast. Um, uh, but in one uh, that Kevin has, it has two chains by his feet. Uh, one that says slavery, uh, and 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 then one that had uh, I think uh, uh, creeds was it. Um, and one of the key identifiers for the early Adventists in the eighteen fifties that this was the Adventist Church or this was the United States being talked about in prophecy was that it was talked about freedom, but held slaves. Yeah. And that dichotomy saw them to recognize that, hey, there's a uh, tension here between what the country says it is and what it's actually living. Um, you know, and they took hope in the emphasis on freedom, and they we launched a great religious liberty work where we appealed to all the great things in the U.S. history and the Constitution and to the Declaration of Independence, while at the same time saying, we're not there yet. And we have a lot of things countering what we say, and this is all going to turn out for the bad, and the nation that says that it stands for freedom is going to come out as one of the uh, uh, bad guys eschatologically. So in each of these things, there's, there's that paradox. Yeah. So I'm, I'm supposed to be preaching this weekend and, uh, that's, uh, the, I want to emphasize both those polls that, yeah, here's where we were founded. That theme on the, uh, uh, that text from Leviticus that's on the Liberty Bell, uh, proclaim liberty throughout the land, uh, the year of Jubilee, um, uh, imagery um, and uh, all those great things uh, in the Declaration of Independence that all men and women are created equal and endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and realizing those words were written by people that held slaves. Yeah. Um, um, and we've been kind of riding back and forth between those two poles, zigging and zagging. Um, and I think of what the, uh, the abolitionist that I studied for Charles Teal with Theodore Parker, uh, this transcendentalist who was associated with Emerson and Thoreau and so on. And uh, he 
often highlighted those themes. His grandfather was the Captain Parker on Lexington Green, and he held his had his two muskets in his study as a pastor. Um, and so he loved that ideal of freedom, that transcendental ideal that you reach up to and into it. Uh, but at the same time, he says we're not there yet, and he so. He, he said that he's not discouraged, though, and he used this phrase that the moral arc of the universe, though it is long and it can't see the end, it tends towards justice. Mm-hmm. And in the 1960s, a yeah. fellow named Martin Luther King picked up on that phrase from Parker, um, uh, recognizing that, yeah, we have the ideal and we're groping our way towards it. Um, now we see that in the streets every day. In the last couple of weeks, I've participated in a couple of marches in Houston on uh, June 1st, together with uh, um, the family of George Floyd here in Houston. He was from here. Um, we had 200 clergy that marked in that marched in that procession, uh, and I was part of that. We had 66,000 people, and it included our chief of police and our mayor to say, you know, hey, we're as a community reunited uh, in this. Uh, Search for Justice. Um, June 9th, I marched in another one in Texas Medical Center with other uh, chaplains and providers and staff and researchers and scientists uh, uh, from the world's largest medical center marching around it saying, you know, we're called to be the healers of society. Uh, And we've got a pandemic and we've got issues of uh, systemic racism and injustice that are also negatively affecting health and our response to the pandemic. So we need to take a stand uh, for justice. Um, so those are the themes that uh, uh, that I'll be preaching about on July 4th. Sounds like a fantastic sermon. <laughs> uh, so, you know, this idea, maybe wrapping up here, this, this idea of uh, paradox is... Uh, with us and and yet um, you've taken stands in your life um, you know kind of picking uh, one side or the other it sounds um, like you've enjoyed being out in the streets protesting for um, justice and and um, anti-racism and I'd love for you to um, kind of reflect on what um, you think in this time of of decision making and in this time of, um, you know, kind of social unrest, um, maybe a consciousness shift, uh, maybe the arc is bending a little bit more, uh, maybe a little quicker, um, at least right now. Um, how do you, how do you, how do you frame up a moment? Um, you know, I've followed your thought for at least 10 years and it's been interesting to see, um, what, things you've taken a stand on, how you've kind of moved in different directions. And I'd love for you to just help folks kind of, you know, who are maybe looking at, okay, maybe there's both sides. What, when, when do we take a stand? Hmm. You know, I I think uh, uh, one of the consistent threads through my life is that, uh, um, yeah, we, we, we do need to take a, a stand when there's issues of uh, injustice, where there's issues of uh, oppression. Um, you know, Charles Teal was a great instructor on that, and I loved having him as, as a professor. Um, 
uh, you know, the Adventist Church started out as that way, speaking up. Um, uh, we got away from it. We kind of in the early 20th century got caught up in kind of fundamentalism and uh, uh, some key people. Carlisle Haynes is one of the people that I point to who both wanted to show that America was so super patriotic. Uh, but then I found an article where he's uh, uh, preaching segregation at a church in Atlanta in the 1940s. Um, and, you know, it took a while for the Adventist church in the last decades to recover that prophetic sense of where we were, that we need to be uh, leading uh, in, in these struggles rather than passively accepting uh, what the, what the culture uh, says to us. Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, we had our theological meetings, American Academy of Religion and the Society of Adventist Philosophers, Adventist Theological Society, Adventist Society of Religious Studies, all these meetings up in Denver. And I took uh, Bonnie Dwyer and Chuck Scriven out to lunch uh, and Ernie Bercy. Uh, and Bonnie said at one point, I don't know whether I should uh, have you and Chuck sitting next to each other. <laughs> uh, she thought that uh, we had, uh, I had some different views on these issues of uh, war and peace. And I said, no, I said, I, I like a lot of what Chuck has written, that he's really tapped into uh, uh, the Anabaptist roots that were so important for, uh, 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 uh if not explicitly for the Adventist pioneers, you know, they don't all right talk about Menno Simons, but doesn't really get into so much of that. But that non-combatancy, that desire of living by the Sermon on the Mount has been an important part of who we are as Adventists that we've kind of lost sight of. Um, and, uh, how, how, how do we recover that? Um, uh, how do we not get sucked into the politics per se? Because there's things that we can criticize of both political parties. Um, uh, but how do we stand with the principles of Jesus as articulated by in, in the Sermon on the Mount? How do we stand up uh, uh, while loving America, but standing, taking our marching orders from Jesus? Uh, and being members of a church that is global, uh, uh, that can't be identified with any particular one nation, but living as good citizens wherever we live, whether that's in a communist nation like uh, uh, Vietnam, whether a uh, 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 more liberal nation, a more conservative nation, whatever, how can we live as good citizens? but live according to the principles of the kingdom. Um, and that might take individuals in some different directions. And that may have us having to work on both sides. Uh, uh, you know, we have chaplains who are both uh, having to minister to congregations uh, that are multi-ethnic, uh, uh, that are affected by uh, injustice. And some of them are chaplains for their local police department. And they're having to go back and forth between the two and be a consistent witness in that mix. Um, so yeah, there's uh, uh, there's there's tensions, uh, there's fears that a lot of people have um, uh, today. Uh, you know, with the fears of vaccines, fears of illness, fears of uh, this party having power, that party having power. 
But Jesus said, perfect love, or the scripture says, perfect love casteth out fear. And Jesus' ministry was becoming one with humanity and loving even those who nailed him to the cross. So that's what chaplains try to do is really identify with our communities, whether that's working in healthcare, whether it's working uh, uh, in, in, in the military, uh, how can we be part of our community and be that presence of Jesus in the midst of these conflicts uh, at the very intersection of these questions? And Jesus was our example, uh, and he's going to be our guide through it. And if we preach him, and especially if pastors, if we get to preaching more the words of Jesus and his call to us, his challenge to us in the Sermon on the Mount, I think that's going to give us both more hope for the time that we're in, as well as uh, how to live faithfully to speak up for those that Jesus says are of deepest concern to him. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, it's been a delight listening to you here and um, both uh, disagreeing and agreeing with you over uh, the last 10 years or so. And I really wish you the best as you continue to minister locally and also um, through your writing and your larger uh, uh, witness for the in our church and uh, society. So thanks for talking with me today. Oh, thanks. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's good, too. Well, take care. I wish you the best this 4th of July, and thank you for your service. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear.